0: Fire Radio. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the National Fire Radio podcast. As 2023 gets going, we're making some changes. And so real quick, before we launch into the daily episode, I just want to hit on a couple things. If you like what you're hearing, we appreciate the support. Please give us a five-star rating on the audio players. It helps promote the podcast and get its popularity up. And I certainly appreciate all all the effort that our community brings to the table in supporting us in the mission of National Fire Radio. Give us that five-star review. Subscribe, like the page, send us your comments. And this is the fun part about what we're doing this year. We created a new email address for you all to send us your thoughts, ideas, and comments or questions or concerns or hate or love or anything else in between, you can email us at podcast at nationalfireradio.com. What that email address will do is it will come as a direct line of source for information regarding the podcast. And so if you have anything that you want to hit us up about the podcast sponsorship opportunities, ad reads, to questions, thoughts, and ideas. We're going to be rolling out a question and answer episode once a week, and it's going to be directly from the emails that are sent in to podcast at nationalfireradio.com. So take advantage of that. Send us your thoughts and ideas and questions, and we'd love to answer them on the air. And lastly, I just got to mention our website, nationalfireradio.com is where you can get any of the swag that we're putting out all of the merchandise that we sell goes right back to supporting the podcast and the National Fire Radio brand. We are super excited for 2023. We have a lot coming out, and I can't wait to share it with you all. Stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in. Now, the podcast. Our first sponsor of the podcast, Taylor's Tins. Taylor and his crew have been manufacturing helmet fronts, aluminum helmet fronts, since 2017. Over 200,000 plus shields have been manufactured by Taylor and his crew. Custom helmet fronts shipped within 24 to 48 hours. Whether it's one piece to a 500 piece department order, they'll get them out under two days. They're doing incredible work, 100% customizable product. Their product is top shelf. Not only are they doing aluminum helmet fronts, they're doing gas cards, playing cards, keychains, medical cards, and charts. Pump charts, street signs, custom signs, banquet awards, you name it, they're doing it. Go to taylorstins.com, And if you do order, use this promo code NFR Sent Me, all one word, NFR Sent Me. You'll get 15% off at checkout. That's because we have a strong relationship and friendship with Taylor from Taylor's Tins. They've been a longtime supporter of the National Fire Radio platform, and I appreciate their support and friendship. Without further ado, The daily episode. Hey, everybody. Jeremy National Fire Radio. Welcome back to the podcast. 2023. This is the kickoff episode for 2023. We're going to plow through this year with incredible guests and opportunities through the podcast. And today is no exception to that. This is a gentleman that I've gotten to meet a few times now. We've done, uh, he's been on the show once or twice. He joined us in FDIC at the Mercedes Hose booth when we were doing some live broadcasting. And this is a guy that brings a lot to the table when we talk about water supply. And so today, we're going to be talking about suburban and rural water supply. (laughs) Hey, there you go. Suburban and rural water supply with Andy Sacondado from The Water Thieves. Andy, thanks for joining me, buddy.
1: Jeremy, thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, It's always fun. I, I enjoy talking with you because I always learn something, right? I mean, I've been doing this a while now. I drive most of the time as one of the more senior guys in the, in the company. So I tend to drive and operate more than most on the pumps these days out of my engine company um, and so on. So it's something that I've dialed into a lot more as I've gotten older um, and more mature in the fire service. You know, driving and operating and pumping and chauffeuring and all of that. Um, water supply, man, critical, critical. Absolutely. Let me do a little background real quick. You are the owner and operator of the Water Thieves, which is a training company. You are uh, formerly of the Charlottesville, Virginia, Career Fire Department. Uh, outside of there, you ended up going to the state of Tennessee Fire Academy, where you teach everything water, I would assume. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and then you travel all over the country lecturing and doing hands-on training, supplying and showing how to maximize your water. Correct. That that's probably sums it all up. Pretty much. Yeah, you <laughs> got it. So let's talk about this. Give me a little bit of background about yourself because I come to find out that guys that dive into pumps and theory and water supply, it's a super passion of theirs. And they really, I think in order to be able to what you call maximize your water supply, you really got to be dialed in to understand uh, all aspects of delivering water and providing correct fire flows for jobs. And so a lot of the training that we hear about and we see on social media or what we're seeing out in the field are urban-based tactics, and then, you know, because a lot of the guys that are out there teaching are from the urban setting, and typically water supply in an urban setting is not an issue unless, obviously, they're having some type of infrastructure issue. But when we get out to suburban and rural areas, water supply becomes a very critical forward-thinking concept because it has to be prevalent in the initial stages of the alarm because you're not relying upon a hydrant every 200 feet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I started my career up in New Jersey as a volunteer, uh, with the Chatham township volunteer fire department. And, um, you know, it, as cliche as it sounds, I'll, I'll never forget the, the very first drill that I ever attended as a 16 year old, um, uh, junior firefighter, uh, was actually, um, hitting a hydrant and doing some water supply operations, right. Some just basic hitting a hydrant and, um, You know, from there, I just kind of got infatuated with, you know, water supply. And, you know, I had always aspired to be uh, an operator of the apparatus in our department and uh, just kind of immersed myself in what I needed to do to be able to effectively serve in that role. So um, when I got hired in Charlottesville, I, I quickly made the uh engineer's position uh the uh, engine operator's position we didn't have an actual promoted position but just jumped in a little bit further and what what i really found about it was um a lot of the knowledge that uh was was provided was you know passed down right it was secondhand knowledge and there wasn't a whole lot of stuff available uh as it would be for some other topics because as I joke around and I like to say, right, this stuff, water supply is, is not the sexy topic, right? It's not, it's not the thing that, uh, you know, most podcasts want to talk about, right? And that's fine. So um, a lot of, a lot of what I started doing was because I had some great mentors, uh, you know, in my career and I took their information and I just kind of goofed off with it right there are a lot of times a lot of a lot of time spent in the back parking lot of headquarters in charlottesville um, you know just goofing off and trying different things right? right so um eventually right i felt like i felt pretty good with this stuff and and started teaching it with folks around and before you knew it a bunch of people wanted to you know take classes and and hear the message so so here we are right and um you know the biggest the biggest takeaway to sum up everything if somebody doesn't want to sit and listen to the hour long discussion on water right the the moral of the story is that uh, water supply operations especially rural water supply operations they involve work yeah. right and most of the time a lot of firemen and and I'll be blunt and I'll say it right a lot of firemen are t-shirt collectors and they don't want to put in the work Right. If you mention, "Hey, we're going to put a thousand foot five inch on the ground for drill tonight," right? You'll get all kinds of obscenities and and people, eyes rolling, excuses.
0: Wrong. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so the moral of the story is, the the fire does not care whether you want to put five inch down or you know put dump tanks down or you know whatever. Right. It requires that amount of work to successfully provide the water needed at the end of the uh, hose line. So, you know, people need to recognize that. And with that, they need to re- uh, routinely train on it, right? Yes. Rural water supply operations are something that should be trained on religiously. And the departments that are really good at it, if you pay attention, you see that they do routine training on it, right? There are a lot of departments in your area, rural departments in New Jersey, that are masters of rural water supply operations sure. you go to parts of most of Maryland, right They're masters of rural water supply operations because they train on it right They put in the work uh, so then, so
0: wait, uh, yeah, and I made a couple notes along those lines and so I, water supply and becoming a good pump operator, show engine company chauffeur whatever whatever you call it an engineer, regardless of the terminology, right right a lot of those programs are done in house right and so mm-hmm. my my thoughts then go to the programs only as good as the people that are teaching it then right and so yeah. what i what i find very interesting is when we send firefighters out for their probational period, or we send guys up the line to receive more advanced training, you know, regardless of what it is as a firefighter, it's usually done on an academy level, or we send them to conferences, they bring it back, and then they reinforce what the department believes in and the senior members or the more, the guys that are in the department, you know, uh, either went through that training already or uh, are familiar with it. And so it's done outside of the department. A lot of departments do their driver's training and pump operation class within-house with their own people. And I think sometimes you got to have an open conversation with yourself and see that if your program might be limited or flawed just based on the abilities of those that are teaching it. And I, I think that pump operation becomes one of those issues where it tends to lean towards an older age group of of individuals within the fire service that typically start teaching it. Right. And as we're starting to lose more and more of those members, I think a lot of that, that pump experience, that pump theory, that pump operational value that they bring to the table gets lost also. And so we're, I think we're struggling a little bit. At least I I believe we are when it comes to the delivery of the abilities of running the pump.
1: No, I would agree with that. And uh, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And, you know, the big thing, the big thing to understand, too, is, right, a lot of, uh, a lot of younger firefighters have the mindset of, well, driving is the old guy's job, right? And I'm to go and ride and I want to fight fire. And, and that's all fun and great. And I'm, don't get me wrong. I love fighting fire just as much as the next guy. but. The the um, the issue is that there's that stigma from the beginning that "Ah, that's that's the that's a retirement job. Yeah, it's not it's not the sexy. Mm -hmm. It's not the action packed job. Um, So a lot of guys automatically have a negative connotation with the role of the pump operator which then when they get into that role right i have students come in all the time into my pump classes in tennessee you know say yeah you know i i don't really want to be here I, i'm here because i have to be yeah i'm here because i want the promotion and i want the pay raise and now i want to fight fire and that's all fine and bandy but you know, once you get into it and start showing, like, okay, guys, this is being a pump operator is more than putting two lines in service yeah. and you know getting a water supply. Now, the majority of your fires might be that, but right, we in the fire service tend to forget a lot of times we need to be prepared to do uh, things that don't happen often. Um, that you know those those one percent incidents, right? And typically, a lot of us are really good at training for that, uh, or at least from my, my point of view, people train on those types of incidents a lot when we look at the test, technical rescue world, right? Sure. We're training for confined space and high-angle stuff and all that kind of stuff that most of us, in my nine years at Charlottesville, we never did that on a call, right? right? So, yeah. but, I, but I went to a whole lot more fires where you know a 1,000 gallons a minute needed to be put in service, right? So um, we tend to forget, I think, from that aspect that water supply is a really, really, really important portion of yeah. uh, our responsibility. And the uh, ha- having that understanding and, and realizing that um, that's possible kind of excites people. And, and I know a lot of the stuff that I do in some of my classes, and I tell my students, like – Listen, some of the volumes of water that we're going to flow in this class, you might only do once in your career or never in your career. However, when we start putting all kinds of crazy um, scenarios in play in the rural environment, putting multiple dump tanks down and trying to see how many gallons a minute we can flow at our simulated fire scene, guys get excited, right? They get excited because they can see, oh, man, this is what hap- this is what you can do when you do it right and yeah. you do it efficiently,
0: right? Oh, I, I think so wholeheartedly. And I think part of that conversation too is that's where the experience and knowledge is key in this equation, right? Because yeah. I find so many people can charge one or two lines, but then you start asking them questions or you start quizzing them or or throw a wrench into the equation and they hey man, uh, you know, I'm good at putting one or two lines in service, but outside of that, man, I, I don't have the experience or or even the training to understand what the next things should be, right? And I think that's a big part of it. So taking your class with you and your instructors, whether it's at the academy or through your private training company, you guys bring a lot of expertise and understanding into the world of water suppression. And this goes back to that conversation that when we teach in-house if we don't have the individuals that have the abilities to go 10 steps further than your every day. And if you don't have people that understand theory and knowledge and can put together scenario-based training that allows people to flourish it, it might not be something you have to do, like you said. It, it might not be that, you know, trench rescue that you haven't done in nine years, right? That specialized right. thing. But we've given you the tools to understand if you need to get there or how the road is paved to get to that point. And with water supply, it's super critical, right? Like, you know, the, I think the urban setting, it's, it's not it, – it falls much lower on the list of priorities, just because it's there. It's prevalent. You know, your first do engine with a 500 gallon tank can take the can take the address with the first do truck and it's the second do engine and third do engine companies uh responsibility to get them water, right? If that's how they operate, it's easy because they have a hydrant on every block or on every corner, you know, and so on and so water supply is not as critical, but when you start looking at suburban and rural communities and part of The conversation I had with you and where I wanted to go today with this was really talking about the suburban and rural sprawl that we're all seeing, right? Across the country, you're finding uh, a lot of people moving out of the urban centers, pushing out into more suburban and rural communities. And with that comes uh, typically some money, which then influences the build, which then you're building larger square foot homes with uh, lightweight construction, composite lumber larger setbacks off the main road, right? There's a lot of obstacles now are happening throughout our communities. um, And what's not following up typically with the sprawl is the water supply. Right. And so that becomes an issue and it becomes, that's where in the suburban or rural setting, the priority of water supply goes way up the list than it would from an urban setting. So, in, in your teachings and trainings, when you talk about this, what are some things you look at, like, with this sprawl? I mean, I know fire flows got to be one, right? You're looking at the larger square footage of, of homes and so on. How do we sustain set fire flows, things like that? I mean, I got to think that's one thing on your checklist for sure.
1: Yeah, so usually when I go places and, and you know, uh, start teaching, usually the first thing that comes up, uh, the first thing that comes up with regards to pushback is, well, we don't have the manpower to put a bunch of dump tanks down or this, that and the other. And while that might be true, you don't really have a choice, right? Like you said, water supply has to be a priority, especially in the rural environment. Right. So that stuff needs to be put down and in place. Right. And um, the other thing that I, I find is, and the next question with regards to like uh, what you're saying about fire flow and all that kind of stuff is, what is the standard response to your rural fire? Yeah. Right? So, you know, the the organization that I came from in Virginia, where I volunteered, right, um, in Albemarle County, we were blessed from the standpoint of if you called nine one one in the rural environment, said my house is on fire, the uh, dispatch center was automatically dispatching five engines and three tankers as a minimum, and it would continue pulling resources until that assignment was fulfilled. And when I go other places in the country, a lot of times, you know, when I ask that question, it's, well, it's whatever, whatever the people that are going to the firehouse decide to pull. So, you know, it could be, it could be three engines and no tankers, or it could be two tankers and one engine and, and it just, you're shooting from the hip every single time. So you know, um, as terrible as it sounds, one, one of the first things that needs to take place in order to be successful in the rural and suburban environment is some sort of standardization, right? If, if I call 911, we need to determine, all right, in, in for this 500,000 – or excuse me, 500 square foot – I'm sorry, 5,000 square foot home. Right. We need a fire flow of X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Right. And what is that going to require us uh, tanker wise to have right or have on the assignment and come up with. All right. This is what the majority of the jurisdiction has. These are the fire flows that we need. So this means that on every fire, I need to have three tankers or four tankers, whatever it is. And generally speaking, nine times out of 10, you probably need more tankers than you think you need. Yeah. And, um, you know, I tell people, call them early, right? Just call them early and you can always cancel them. And yeah, that might hurt some feelings if you get canceled a bunch of times, but that one time you need it, it's there, right? So, um, you know, circling back, the, the other thing that that uh, I noticed is a lot of people, because they're short on manpower, and I understand that that's a valid concern, Right. You only have a couple people that are are coming to your fire um, and they may not be um, really experienced at that. Right. So the the tendency is to want to do a lot of nurse operations. Right. Or, Or whatever the organization calls it. Right. The first tanker pumps their booster tank water to the attack engine. Right. We continue doing that until. You know, hopefully the fire's over. And while that works for small incidents, it absolutely creates a pigeonhole uh, scenario because it's not consistent. And in in our classes, we try and preach that, listen, mobile water supply apparatus are most efficient when they're mobile, right? When they're moving, when they're rolling up and down the road. So we need to be able to set up a, a system that allows that to happen. And fire departments that are unsuccessful with that take the mindset of, or at least they have been, um, they've operated on fires in the past where they've tried to go from no water supply established to trying to set up dump tanks. And usually the fire attack engine runs out of water in between. So a lot of guys, a lot of guys take the mindset of, you know, screw the dump tanks. Those aren't, you know, we run out of water every single time. So the probably the cornerstone rural water supply tactic that we teach in our classes is the concept of the rural hitch. And, um, you know, we're, we're really big advocates of the rural hitch. And, um,
0: you know, I like to tell
1: folks that it is the perfect blending of uh, simple operations to start. And A, they allow us to go to more complex shuttle operations. Um, if the flow requirements uh, deem it necessary and it really all pivots around this simple the simple use of a Clappard Siamese right and uh, you know I I tell folks and a lot of guys want to get into the argument of well should the first engine lay up the driveway should the second engine do it and again that that's a discussion that um, can go a lot of different directions based on how the department and how the organization deploys their resources. Right. So I like to tell folks that I personally, I don't care if the first engine lays the line, there are benefits and disadvantages of that. I don't care if the second engine lays the supply line, there are benefits and disadvantages to of that as well. The point is that a supply line gets laid from the driveway or the mouth of the driveway to the fire scene. And at the end of that supply line is a Clappard Siamese, which allows the first arriving tanker or, or whatever to position, hook into that Siamese and start uh, what a lot of people call a traditional nursing operation. Right, And then once the third do or second do, fourth do, whatever engine gets there, they can start hooking up and uh, deploying the dump tanks to be able to transition to our dump operation. And and what we have found is that departments that we've introduced that idea to in classes um, and departments that have embraced it and ran with it, it has totally changed the way they do operations and it streamlines um, how efficient they are and how they can start with quick water because quick water has a, a definitive impact on successful outcomes we know that right and we're not trying to at any point say that we shouldn't quickly deliver water but it allows us to transition from that quick simple initial water to something that is more sustainable for longer periods of time um and that that really is the cornerstone i believe
0: yeah i mean i love that so the rural hitch is that your terminology is that what you call it
1: uh i mean i i I don't want to say that i coined it no no. but okay Um, um But but yeah, that's that's the term that that I like to use for that for that uh, technique. And depending on where you go in the nation, some people, you know, will use that term rural hitch and it'll mean something a little bit different. Um, Some people uh, refer to the rural hitch any time that the Siamese is used. And and what some people uh, will do is or 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 teach is that. You know, the rural hitch is an option for the first tanker to start pumping water. And then when the second tanker gets there, they hook to the other side of the Siamese and pump water. And then they kind of the tankers leapfrog. Right.
0: And that. Yeah, I'm glad. Go ahead. Keep going.
1: Yeah. And and what I like to tell people is the biggest the biggest difference in my definition of the rural hitch and what some people in my in, in the same circles I run in differentiate is that instead of the you know our definition of the rural hitch is starting with that nurse but the other side of that Siamese is where your supply engine's going to hook in so that way you can transition from a pumping operation from your tankers to a dumping operation right. with your dump site pumper so so that's that's the real um Difference, I would say, in terminology between what some people call the roll hitch and what I call. The rural
0: okay. So let's, I want to break this down just a little bit further because people that are teetering on this water supply, whether it's suburban, more towards the rural, if they're familiar with tanker or tender operations, I want to ask you that question too, but we'll get back to that one. But when, when, when they're familiar with shuttling water, they're probably familiar with the Clapper Siamese, but I know a lot of people are not. And especially when it's more of a suburban setting where they have some hydrants throughout their district and in some areas aren't and they do a lot of nurse activity or booster backup. I think uh, has been coined as a phrase too to do the same type of operation, but the Clapper, the Clapper Siamese offers a fantastic opportunity to have, two apparatus hook up to supply one and they can disconnect without interrupting the flow. Right. Because the internal correct. clapper of the Siamese will go in favor of whichever is pushing more water. Right. So, well, the, the key
1: here, is, the key here is a, um, you're a hundred percent correct, but what I like to tell folks and what folks need to be pay attention to with clappered Siamese is uh, most of them um Most manufacturers have fixed this, but there are older uh, Siameses out there. Make sure when you're purchasing one or if you're using one, make sure that your Siamese has what we call a double clapper, which means a clapper on each inlet. Uh, Some of them only have a single clapper. Makes sense. So if both hoses, for whatever reason, are disconnected, water will drain out of the Siamese. So it always requires one rig to be positive. Yeah.
0: Birds. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So a double close. So that's important, man. And I'm glad that came up because, you know, I can guarantee you there's going to be some conversation after this episode with people listening to this that have never used one before. And they're going to be interested in seeing how it works or, or what it's all about. And I think it's a fantastic operation because if you, if you're working in a non-hydrant area and like, I know where I am, we have probably 40% of our fire district is non-hydrant. But we have a hydrant within a couple thousand feet, and typically if the fire is large enough, we will relay pump with a couple engines in line off a hydrant assist valve, and we will establish domestic water. But we don't really do any tender or or tanker operation shuttles-wise. We'll we'll nurse each other or, you know, um, provide each other's, you know, booster tanks and then move on until we establish that line. Um, But I think what's interesting is, is when you talk about that clappered Siamese, whether it's a long driveway off the roadway, or if it is a, um, you know, uh, a small cul-de-sac off of a main road, right, where you can get a truck and maybe the first two engine lays in and they leave that clappered Siamese at the corner. I mean, that's just a beautiful pickup spot um, that can be used. And I think that's a valuable tool when it comes to this type of water supply.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, like you said, it's, it's, um, you know, a perfect pickup spot and, and, you know, it kind of, in my mind, it allows all the later arriving units to know exactly with regards to water supply, know where they're operating. Yeah. Right? This this is your marker, right? This is where the dump site gets built around, right? There's no need to, um, you know, congest the fire scene and, and stuff like that, right? And, and you know, I, I know a lot of, there are a lot of fire departments, and if anybody listening, if this is how they do business, I'm not trying to knock it or say that you're doing it wrong. But I know a lot of organizations will go um, and their tankers will commit down the driveway, dump their water or pump their water, and then back out or whatever, and, and they'll just bring tanker up the driveway and then back down the driveway. And you know, while while it probably has put fires out and it works for some organizations, I can guarantee you that the efficiency of that operation yeah, is not right. the same right. as if you're laying the supply line. And it really boils down to, and I hate to be like this, but it boils down to most firemen are more worried about picking up the LDH <laughs> at the end of the operation or having to pick up the dump tanks. Yeah. Right? And,
0: yeah. I can, I get that. I get and, that.
1: You know, I, to me, right. I don't, I don't know that, 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 that's just something. And I'm probably, um, you know, have a negative mindset on that, but yeah, water supply operations required work, right? You know, it's it, it, and, and pick, that's what it's going to be.
0: Picking up hose is part of firefighting. And like, I, mean, I think, I think departments that don't put hose on the ground enough for the ones that don't want to pick it up and departments that put hose on the ground every single day, they don't mind picking it up because it's part of the gig. Right. And you know, when you got to pick up that much supply line in a, in a suburban or rural setting, it's just part of the game. And um, what I, the way I envision it, right, I, every, everything in the fire service, I try to look for, like, how I, how I make it work in my head. And, like, I think of, like, you know, with the tanker supply, like, through that Clappered Siamese with a line up the driveway or up a uh, small cul-de-sac street or something like that is you're looking at like an airport and the planes are coming in one at a time. And it, it just ground control is making sure that those planes come in one at a time, equally spaced, and they're able to you know, do their job. And like, that's exactly how tender and tanker shuttles should operate. And if you're not going to do dump tanks or get into it down the road, it's the same theory, but now it's away from the fire scene. Right. And so right. for laying that five inch or four inch, whatever you run, I mean, what's the big deal? It makes for a smoother operation uh, and much, much easier to coordinate, too, for sure.
1: Well, here's the other thing that I love about the rural hitch. and, And I try, you're right, I try and emphasize this for departments that are really hesitant about putting dump tanks down. And the beauty of doing the rural hitch the way we outlined it earlier is you know, let's say, let's say the, the tanker pumping the Siamese is feeding the fire scene that later arriving engine gets there and they set the dump tank up. They're hooked to the other inlet of the Siamese and they're ready to go. There is nothing, nothing that says that that dump tank needs to be dumped and full of water. Right. right? So if the incident commander recognizes, Hey, you know what? The next new tanker, Just go ahead and hook into the other side of the Siamese. We'll continue this pumping operation. Don't fill the dump tank. We don't need it. It's a small fire, whatever. Fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that dump tank and all those connections are made and ready to rock and roll if it transitions because the fire, you know, has gotten into the attic and is running or something, right? So so really it's a – I like to think of it as a, um, you know – uh uh, an insurance policy right yeah it it allows you to uh, be more efficient if you need it and here's the other beautiful thing that 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 a lot of firefighters don't think about either right the reverse is true let's say you're you know on that large barn fire or whatever you're hauling water all night and you're finally getting ready to start kicking up right you don't need the dump tanks anymore well, what the Siamese and the Royal Hitch allows you to do is it allows you to go from complex back to simple. Yeah. Right. You, the incident commander can say, Hey, tanker one, go ahead, hook into the Siamese and we're just gonna use your tank water to uh, you know, knock down these hot spots and the dump site can start breaking down, right? So you can kill two birds with one stone um, if we're if we're really talking about maximizing efficiency on all aspects of the water supply operation.
0: So let me ask you this, then I want to pivot just a little bit when you teach and you talk about maximizing water flow. Right. That's what your term right there. Maximizing water flow. Right. Maximizing water flow. I'm just writing that term down because we're going to come back to it. But maximizing water flow also comes down to water application. Right. I think it's so important in, in in. you know, let me know what your thoughts are on this, or if you teach this, because I think it's critically important is putting water supply in perspective as to how much you have and what you can do with it when properly used. Right. And, that, oh, absolutely. and that goes from everything from, you know, uh, master stream application to individual handlines. We run a 3,500 gallon pumper tanker, right? We don't run a uh, port pond because like I said, we always run, uh, domestic water. So we will, we will drop a lot of hose. We've dropped over 5,000 feet for a relay for, a you know, 10,000 square foot home. I mean, it's just, it's happened. Right. And we put pumpers in line to, to pump, but on top of that, 3,500 gallons of water on your initial with an inch and three quarter hand line flowing up, say what, 160. I mean, you got 20 plus minutes of water before you're out. Right. So, so part of the conversation that I think is important when I talk with guys about water supply is really understanding your own numbers and what you can do for 20 minutes with an inch and three quarter hand line at 160.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think with that being said, it's really important to understand because I get into this argument a lot with folks or, you know, they'll take the mindset of, oh, you know, if you can't put it out with 4,000 gallons of water, right you you're 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 not it's burning to the ground anyway and and i need to uh i need to brag on my boys in um centerville tennessee they they recently had a job um a couple weeks ago where it was in the rural environment where they had a a residential home well involved and uh, they made a grab on that on that fire but they implemented Proper uh, rural water supply tactics, and for the incident, they hauled forty thousand gallons wow. of water for yeah. the incident. Yeah, right. And 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 a lot of people will say, well, I mean, if if you needed that much water, right, that 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 house would have burned to the ground, and it would have been a loss, right? Well, if we take that mindset, that person that they that they saved would be dead, right? So, so it's important to understand that. You know, yeah, it probably uh, you know, you, you can you can still um, start your initial operations with 3,000, three thousand, thirty five hundred, five yeah, thousand gallons of water. But at the end of the day, by the time you do all the tactics and, and, and responsibilities you have to fully extinguish the fire you're probably looking at a couple thousand gallons of water, right? 10,000, 20,000 gallons. Could of water. very well be, for sure. In, in Centerville's case, it was, uh, you know, 40,000 gallons of water. So, um, you know, the important thing to understand is that when we take the mindset of, oh, I got 4,000 gallons of water. If I can't put it out with that, then I, I need to go back to the rookie school. It's important to understand that that is a, assuming that you're putting the water where it needs to be. Yes. And let's be real. A lot of us go to fires where we see water being put places where it's probably being wasted. Oh, right? 100%. So that, I
0: mean, that's kind of that what my, that's kind of what my point was with this, right, is like yeah. understanding how to maximize your water when water is not a commodity, when water is precious on a fire ground. You're The guy opening that bail needs to be conscious of that. Right. We can't just open and flow, you know, with without any consequence. I mean, we have to be sure that, you know, when we flow, we're flowing in a position that we need to be flowing in and it's making an impact or a difference on the fire ground. My point was, is education is key. People don't. Yeah. Sometimes the, the common sense. Of things gets lost and automatically, you know, for a room and contents fire, which we should be able to handle with 3,500 3, gallons with an inch and three quarter smoothbore, we should be able to knock that fire down in 90 seconds, you know, or less. Absolutely. And we should be able to mop up with it. Right. But, Absolutely. but. Right. We still have to be precautious of if it gets above, if it gets in the attic, if it runs the soffit, whatever. Right. All these all these variables. So we still have an obligation to make sure that we have the potential to get the amount of water that we need there to properly fight that fire. And I think to go back to what you were saying, I think it's extremely dangerous for any individual to say, well, if you couldn't put it out with that, you know, then I better go back to training or they would have burned the house down anyway. Well, we're not in the business to burn people's houses down. And, you know, if if we take the life out of the situation, we still have an obligation to protect property and we don't write off structures like we just don't do that. You know, we still have an obligation to aggressively extinguish or limit the spread of fire by putting ourselves in the way of reducing the ability for that to destroy people's possessions. I mean, we just have that obligation. So we can't just write shit off. Just we're not allowed to.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and that's that's the thing, right? I think, and, and really what the mindset to that needs to be, the change needs to be of that mindset is, yeah, you probably, right, you can take 4,000 gallons of water and make an aggressive knock to save somebody's life or, you know, positively impact the um, outcome of the incident. However, <laughs> right, I need to be prepared for more water to be able to um, completely extinguish the fire, right. Right. right? There's a difference between knockdown and extinguishment, right? So so that's that's the mindset that, that I think people really need to take and what they need to be um, ready for or at least be acceptable with is, hey, listen, I have 3,500 gallons or 4,000 gallons available between my first engine and my first tanker here. I can make an aggressive push and I shouldn't be afraid to make an aggressive push, right. Right. To have a positive impact. And I mean, right. Not, there aren't a lot of places that'll admit this, but some places take the mindset that, well, we're not going to do anything interior till right. We have an established water supply. And I, and I don't want to go down that road and argue that. No,
0: I I get it. I get it. But that is,
1: we both know that that's probably not the best option. Correct. Right. You know, so and, um, it's something. It's it's definitely a mindset.
0: Yeah, and that's where that's where education is key. That's where talking about this and this conversation today matters because I'm sure somebody's going to pick something up out of this conversation that they didn't know or didn't think of before. You know, just do sure. simple math. Understand one line, two lines in operation against the water against the booster tank size you have on your apparatus, and understand what your flow is. Understand how much water you can get out of it. Get out and practice and train and see what one line versus two line does. See what dumping your master stream, how quick do you dump your master stream off your booster tank, right? Like these yeah. are things that I think matter, right? And and it's simple little training nuggets that you can do to at least better your mindset to understand what your potential is with the water you carry, right? That matters.
1: Absolutely. 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 And, and it's really important to understand, too, right, that, you know, it, everything has a cause and effect, right? We know that. But the big thing to understand, too, is that every line that you put in service automatically impacts the number of tankers you need on the supply side, yeah. too, right? And I think that's something that people often forget, right? I never put you know, any thought how, to that. How much really is a 500-gallon-per-minute flow? you know, at the fire scene, whether that's two, two and a half or, or however you flow your lines. Right. And, and, you know, on the supply side, something equally important is to understand that, um, right. You know, we need to make sure that we're supplying water efficiently on the supply side. So I'm, I'm just pulling up something real quick that I have Right, depending on how far you, you're going to fill your tankers, right, how far your fill site is, and more importantly, the, the fill rate, which is a whole other topic, right, the rate in which you're filling your tankers out uh, at, you know, a 3,000-gallon tanker making a two-mile round trip being filled at 1,000 gallons a minute is good for 244 gallons a, a minute of continuous flow at the fire scene, right? So that tells me that that one tanker coming to to dump and then leaving to get refilled allows me to flow a consistent 245 gallons a minute. Right. So if I need to flow uh, 500 gallons a minute at the scene, I need at least two tankers. Right. If I need to flow more than that. Right. My numbers start getting higher and higher and higher and my numbers will decrease. If I'm not filling my tanker at my desired rate, right? Yeah, well,
0: that's that, what I was going to that, say. That's if everything's running perfectly.
1: That's if everything <laughs> is running perfectly, and and I don't I don't know how um, you guys do business up there, but I know a lot of places because of the manpower issue. One of the things I struggle to to really hit home um, and get people to like buy into is the absolute need when we're talking about fill site operations to assign an engine to that fill site. Now, yeah. that kind of goes, goes without saying if my fill site is a static source, right? Well, yeah, I need an engine there to draft the water and fill the tankers. Where we really run into problems with this is when folks are using hydrants as their fill site, right? right? But the mindset is, oh, well, the tanker will just go there. It's a strong hydrant. It'll fill under hydrant pressure. Well, even if it's filling at your 1,000 gallons a minute, it's not efficient, right? When and and I like to think, uh, I like to tell folks, think of it like NASCAR. When 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 the car pulls into uh, pit row, the driver doesn't get out and change his tires, right? right? Yeah, 100%. He has a crew That's that good. does that, right? He has a crew that does that. So even if that driver is capable of doing it at the same speed as that crew could, right? If that hydrant is able to fill at a thousand gallons a minute, right? the time it takes for that driver to get out make the connections open a valve open a hydrant fill break the connections get back in you're kill you're losing efficiency because of the time it takes right oh, for sure so um, and, and usually the argument that comes back is well we don't have enough engines to do that well that tells me from the outside looking in and it's easy for me to say this you need to call more engines, yeah, right? right? Because a, a, a fill site pumper is absolutely essential to be able to efficiently fill and provide uh, decent volumes of water at the fire scene, right? Now, with that being said, it's also important to understand that distance as – I mean, duh, distance has a huge impact on the efficiency too. What I mean by that is I know, that I know of a lot of fire departments in the rural environment they will drive past water to get to water. And what I mean by that is they will drive past a perfectly good and uh, suitable static water source to go miles to the nearest fire hydrant, right? And all that does is decrease the amount of water available to the fire scene because we can't overcome that distance, right? That distance kills us. So even if It takes, uh, you know, if I have a source that is a lower fill volume, but is closer to the fire scene, that is still better than driving further away to get water and come back, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You you said something before um, that I thought I had never thought of it before, um, only because I've never been in that position to have to think about it. But Uh as I find on the fire ground, it's, it's quite common when the job's still going and you're second, third, fourth, and companies are coming in, they're grabbing another line, and they're going to work, right? And a lot of times, depending on your, 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 your command presence and what the, what the mission is, if there's a lot of fire, chances are you've got multiple lines being stretched. But as an incident commander and the operations boss, you really have to take into account how many companies are stretching lines on your fire because it does matter to your water supply. And every time another line goes in service... Are we ensuring that the c- water coming in can can, ma- can suffice the lines being stretched? Because it's a lot easier to pull an inch and three quarter on a job than it is to make sure we have enough water coming in. And I've been on fires in those communities where we're running out and then we're getting water and then we're running out again. And mind you, you're looking around and you got multiple lines stretched, right? Whereas yeah. maybe one continuous line would make a lot more headway on a fire then multiple lines each getting a couple seconds at a time of water. And so that, as an incident commander, that makes a very – like, Andy, that's a great point, is as li- as more lines go – I know it's common sense, but you, typically I don't think a lot of incident commanders are thinking of it that way. Hey, we need another line to the rear. Okay, they pull another line, right? But now yeah. on, the, on the other end, okay, we just pulled a third line on this fire, and we need a sustained rate of 160, 165 on that line – uh, do we, can we supply that through our current means of water supply? I don't, yeah. I don't know how many chiefs are having those conversations unless you do this regularly every time you have a fire.
1: Yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously, you know, a little sales pitch, right? I I sell t- uh, charts that have, you know, fill rates yeah. and number of needed tankers based on round trip distances, all that stuff. But, what I tell people, right, my general rule of thumb, and it is very conservative. So, so uh, you know, I need I need to put that out there because it depends on how far your round trip is, the size of your tanker, right? Sure, of course. Fill rate, all that stuff. But I, I tell folks, right, in my mind, as an instant commander, every tanker that's coming to my scene is good for 150 gallons a minute fire flow if it's dumping into a tank, right? So if I have 300 gallons a minute in service, I need at least two tankers, right? If I have a, a, a deck gun in service, right that's telling me that I need three to four tankers to support it, right and that that that's being very conservative, right? But I'd rather be conservative than, than not, right? yeah so so yeah, that's absolutely something that needs to. Uh, that needs to be thought about, and it's really simple, right? As an incident commander, and for those incident commanders that are listening to this, just think of it, right? Every line that I'm putting in service, we know that ballpark inch and three-quarter line should be flowing about a, at least 150 gallons a minute. So every inch and three-quarter line I have in service, that's a tanker. I need a tanker to support it. I need a tanker to support every single inch and three-quarter line I have in service, right? And and that little general rule of thumb is uh, should allow you to, in the worst case, have more water than you need rather than not enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's cool, man. I've I've never heard that before, so I appreciate you sharing that with us. So for every inch and three-quarter line, we should have one tanker. Yeah. Beautiful. Talking about tanker, tanker or tender?
1: Oh, man. This this is easy, right? (laughs) A a tender is what I did in honey mustard. (laughs) A tanker is a badass... Water
0: hauling machine. Oh, I love that, man. That is, that's fantastic. <laughs> man, I remember, I forget where it came down from. I think it was the government or something, right, where they were standardizing terminology. Tender, yeah, you know, yeah. that's a tender. A tanker flies. A tanker has wings. I'm like, who cares? We know what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, right? exactly.
0: But that's that's awesome. A tender is what I dip in honey mustard. Yep.
1: That's I love it. The, old chicken tender. That's,
0: listen, that might be your bumper sticker for 2023 yeah. right there, you know? <laughs> I love that. I just want to hit on one or two other topics with you real quick, just short ones. Um what about the implementation of say calves, something that is, makes our water go further. I'm just curious. No, I don't need to know your po- your preference whether you like, don't like. I'm just curious about maximizing your water. And typically calves might be an opportunity.
1: Yeah, so um you know, I, I, I came from an organization where I volunteered in Albemarle County that was very heavy on calves when I was there. Um, since I have left, that, that standpoint has changed. Got it. Um, and, and here's what I'll say. I will I will not debate the science behind calves, right? Because there are engineers and, and scientists a whole lot smarter than me that are, you know, coming out with data regarding uh, what CAPS is able to do. What I can speak to personally is depending on the age of the unit and everything like that. Right. Um, it does add a layer of complexity to the operation. For does, sure. it extend, does it extend our water? Yes. But does it add a layer to of complexity? Yes. And uh, you know, I, I had a, I had a captain who also volunteered in the same organization that I volunteered with. My captain, he would always say, in the volunteer world, we are part-time truck drivers at best, right? And that always really resonated with me, right? I'm a part-time truck driver at best because it could be, depending on your organization, it could be two years uh, between fires you pump. Yeah, for sure. All the other jobs that you have to fill and who showed up to drive and, oh, you know what? I normally ride backwards and we haven't had a fire in a while, whatever, right? So – so having something that adds another layer of complexity can be problematic, sure. right? And I would always joke in my organization, right? We we had folks that had a hard enough time getting water out of the engine. <laughs> now you're talking about two more things to get out of it, right? Yeah. Right. You know. So um, so here here's what I will say about CAS, right? Um, it is it is a great knockdown tool. However, folks need to know when to use it, and folks need to know when not to use it. Yeah. Right. And using it inappropriately can cause you more harm than it than it um, than it does good, right? Um, I, I'm a firm believer with regards to foam and rural water operations. In in my experience, just simple Class A foam and water um, has more of a beneficial impact than the whole calf thing, right? Not to mention the price
0: difference. Oh, 100%. I was just curious. I just, uh, yeah, I really, what this was was just to see what your thoughts were, because, you know, yep. where, where we're limited on the delivery of water, looking at alternative sources, and one of that would be a different mixture, right? Something that can extend our water further. So if I can get more protection or coverage out of one gallon of water by using it in a calf's application or even just straight foam at 3% or whatever, right? Like that might extend your abilities further, especially when we're struggling for water.
1: Yeah, so so to me, right? If if you know, if I had to build an engine and my options were, you know, a 750 gallon tank with a CAFs unit, or a thousand gallon tank with just a Class A foam unit, right? I'm going thousand gallon yeah. tank with the Class A, right? Like over the calf's unit.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I'm a firm believer that GPM wins. Absolutely. I think, you know, I I with water. I don't know an application where less is better.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, I mean, and go ahead. So here's, here is, and, and going, going along with that, let's take Cass out of the equation, but it's, it's kind of similar, right? I know a lot of people that will, um, on rural fires, they're afraid to flow heavy caliber streams right. up front because they're afraid of running out of water, right? Right. So instead, they'll pull an inch and three-quarter line and piss in the wind um, while the fire burns because they're afraid of running out of water. And, and you know, the, the comment that I have heard from folks of that mindset is that, well, at least we look like we're doing something for the homeowner rather than, sit, rather than sitting around with uh, no water, right? yeah but but if we put the fire out, the problem's over, yeah right so, so uh, right, the
0: initial punch matters, down,
1: yeah, it ultimately comes down to GPM overcoming BTU production right, right? and and if that means that I and again that 's not pulling up and shooting a deck gun over the roof right yeah that that 's a perfect way to waste your water and look like a clown. But if you're actually putting that heavy caliber stream where it matters and able to extinguish the fire, who cares if you uh burn through most of your booster tank while the water supply is established?
0: Right? Yeah, because you get you punch it in the face, man. I mean exactly you know, that that initial punch when done correctly, you know, stretching that two and a half over an inch and three quarter, but being able to deliver that GPM in the initial punch, yeah, you know what's gonna happen? You're gonna make a bigger impact than pissing in the wind.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day. Right. It all boils down to training. Right. It all boils down to training, training on those topics or on those tactics um, to to be able to do it efficiently. Right. You know, um, one of my favorite simple little drills to do with a deck gun. Right. And you really don't need nothing other than cones is put somebody up top on the deck gun and tell them to knock over cones. Yeah. Right. And they are like, oh, well, shit, that, that's going to be easy. Right. Until they get up there, and their uh, point of view, and their depth perception, and the spray, and the you know gravity's effect on the stream, right? All of that comes into play, and you're like, wow, I probably would have wasted a lot of water if I hadn't trained on this before. That right? and that,
0: and some type of shut off up top.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, shut off up top. Yeah, it's amazing.
0: It, it, we've run we've run content on that before. Different departments do it different, different, you know, different ways. Whatever. Yeah. And pe- people are still like, holy shit, never thought of that. Like, you know, a lot of deck guns are, or, you know, deluge, whatever you want to call it, right? Stang yeah. gun, I don't care. There's so many different terms for it. But a lot of times it's controlled by the gate on the panel. Yeah. So, yep. you know, by the time you pull that gate, you know, rev up and then climb up, you've already lost how many gallons of water, right? Yep. Before you're even aimed on target. So that's the nice thing about putting a valve in line. Is that especially in a short-handed company where you don't have a guy sitting up top waiting for the water, and the operator's got to pull his own lever, right? Uh, you know, uh, rev RPM up and then get up top and use the gun. You know, make make it a winning package, right? Especially where water counts.
1: Yeah, and and one thing I I want to add to that since we're on the topic for for folks that are building new pumpers, one thing one option that in my opinion, is worth every single cent is if you're, you know, if you're, you're trying to do a blitz attack operation is specify in your spec that you want a control valve that's tied into the pump panel valve up in the dunnage area for the deck gun or wagon pipe or whatever you call it, right? So that way, if you're also running an extend a gun, all you have to do is open your tank to pump. Throttle up to the right pressure, climb up, extend the gun, point, and then you just open the valve in the dunnage area, water comes out. Yeah, it's
0: perfect. That's good.
1: You can control it all from the dunnage area, right? Um, Because, you know, gate valves, ball valves on the uh, end of your deck gun is a great option for rigs that are already built. Yes. Right but if you have that extend the gun feature you can't do nothing with it after you charge the line right? right you're you're stuck yep so um so yeah that that's one thing if you're building a new rig it's worth in my opinion it's worth every single cent
0: yeah that's good man uh, andy that's a that's a great point so thank you for sharing that Absolutely. so let's do this as we're winding down here man an hour goes quick so what's next yeah no joke you? yeah what's next for you what do you guys got going on the warm weather is a few months out um, outside of your teaching at the fire Academy and so on, what about your, uh, the water thieves themselves? What do you have planned? Anything going on? Any classes? Yes. Coming up?
1: So in January, we're going to Junction, Texas to do a rural water supply class nice. for guys down there. Um, Teeks has been fortunate enough and, and gracious enough to, to, you know, help sponsor that class down there along with, uh, uh Eric Johnson with his company down there. Uh, supporting us, and then uh, we'll be—I'll be at FDIC this year presenting again. Great! And um, there, are, uh, for those of us that follow us, there, there—all I'll say is there are a couple other big projects in the works Love that, that will be will be announced later on in the year. So, uh, Stay tuned for all
0: that. Well, congratulations on the success, and and uh, I'm sitting here uh, watching from the sidelines as you guys continue to push and get your message out there. And it was important to me, especially with the podcast where we're diving into topics. I think today's topic was fantastic, man. And I just, I can't thank you enough for spending an hour with me today and sharing some of your experience and knowledge uh, means the world. So thank you, Andy. Appreciate it, brother. Jeremy,
1: thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure and, and I appreciate all the support. and. Look forward to to, to doing more
0: of it. Yeah, well, one of these days I was supposed to get down to one of your one of your uh, world record uh, events, and uh, <laughs> unfortunately, it just didn't work out. Man, I was really hoping I to know. get down there, um, but I'd love to. I'd love to see some of what you do, the hands on first uh, firsthand. So I do have to make it to one of your classes within the next few uh, years. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. But, uh, man, I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, where can people find you uh, if they want to reach out, they want to further this conversation or reach out about training or opportunities, where can they get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, just search The Water Thieves. We're on Instagram. And then if you have a, a question uh, that you want to ask not on a public forum, you can just email me at at gmail.com. Real simple.
0: Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Andy, don't go Absolutely. anywhere. Stay right here. I'm just going to sign off, and then I'll come right back to you, okay? All right. Great. Guys, thanks Thank for – yeah, of course. Thank you. Guys, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the National Fire Radio Podcast, starting off 2023 with us rock star guest, Andy Sacondado of The Water Thieves. Uh, incredible – experience, and knowledge being brought to suburban and rural water supply. If you're not familiar with him, check him out on the social media pages. Send him an email. Look up his training and opportunities. It's definitely a class worth looking at and taking. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. Take this conversation back to the firehouse and talk about it because when we talk about the job, we make the job better. Thanks for tuning in. Excited for a brand-new year. We'll see you at the next one. Jeremy, National Fire Radio.
1: Fire ring.